From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, October 26th. I'm Marco Werman. China blocks online access to the New York Times. We'll hear about the story that upset Chinese censors. Also, Italy's flamboyant former prime minister, Silvio Berlusconi, is convicted of tax fraud. And later, the story of a toddler lost in Syria's civil war. He's now been reunited with his family. The boy was ecstatic and was um, just talking and bubbling, and the mom was hugging her son. She was uh, um, (laughs) trying very hard not to cry, wiping away her tears. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, producers of Market Warriors. From the people that brought you Antiques Roadshow, four pickers scour flea markets nationwide, hoping to out-profit their competitors at auction. Don't miss Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. One of the things about digital journalism is that everyone around the planet can now see your local newspaper. But if that newspaper happens to be The New York Times and it's got an article about the mind-boggling wealth of the Chinese premier, well, you can bet not everyone in China is going to see that article. And that's precisely what has happened. The Times published a lengthy article today about Chinese Prime Minister Wen Jiabao. It claims that over the years, Wen's family has amassed a fortune worth some $2.7 billion, mostly during Wen's time in office. Chinese censors clearly did not like that. And access to the Times websites, both their English and Chinese versions, was quickly blocked. A foreign ministry spokesperson in Beijing said the article was motivated by ulterior motives. The world's Mary Kay Mag said is in Beijing. Uh, $2.7 billion worth of assets is thought to be controlled by relatives of the premier, Mary Kay. That's pretty astounding for a man who projects a humble image. Well, it certainly is. And it'll be interesting to see how the news is received here once it sort of trickles into the media savvy masses. For now, the Chinese government is blocking everything it can. The New York Times webpage, every time the story comes up on the BBC or CNN, the screen goes blank. But this is coming at a very interesting time in many ways. There's a leadership transition coming up in November. Wen Jiabao is very concerned about his own personal legacy and how people will remember him. The outgoing administration is is worried about how people will remember them. And the credibility of the party is at stake. Is there any sense, Mary Kay, of how many Chinese saw the New York Times article before the government blocked access to it on the net? And and how would they react to the news that the family of the premier has accumulated all this wealth? Okay, so the story broke in China at about four in the morning in English. There's also a new Chinese language version of the New York Times, and the Chinese language version of the story came online, I believe, at about seven and was online for less than an hour before it was blocked. So people who would have seen the story directly on the New York Times website 
the number is probably pretty small. There's also a PDF option available on the New York Times website. So it could be that some people downloaded the story and are passing it around now. There have been a few comments that have made it onto the Chinese version of Twitter, Weibo, for a few minutes before they were taken down. Mm. But these were posted by Chinese who were outside of mainland China. But what's kind of interesting is just with a couple of Chinese friends I've talked to, there's this level of cynicism which I've noticed in many people here. Of you know, we all knew this. I mean,、mm. all all these guys, you know, their families are wealthy. We knew that Wen Jiabao's wife has been was many years ago involved in gem trading and diamond trading, and he was reportedly embarrassed enough about it that at one point he threatened to divorce her. And and he himself has talked many times about how officials need to rein in their families and not let their families take advantage of the. Fact that their relative is in a position of power, but it really begs the question then of why he didn't do a better job of that himself. So I kind of offered earlier that、uh, Wen Jiabao has projected a humble image, but tweak that for us. What, what kind of image precisely has he created for himself? So Wen Jiabao's nickname is Grandpa Wen. You know, he's known for flying out immediately when there's a disaster or when people are suffering, when people are stranded at a train station in a snowstorm, and saying, "I feel your pain." Um, I'm here with you. I'm going to stand here while the rescuers are getting the kid out of the home that collapsed in an earthquake. You know, I'm going to huddle here with you in the train station while you're waiting for the trains that aren't going because of the snowstorm. And a lot of people really genuinely like him. They like what they've seen of him because he's one of the only Communist Party officials that comes across as really having. A personality and compassion, and when you have a situation where the gap between the rich and the poor is growing, where the seventy wealthiest members of the National People's Congress have an average net worth of one point two billion dollars each,、wow. and then you have a report like this come out. How does this work? This accumulation of wealth among the, these party bosses. I mean, you, you spoke of diamonds and, and other trade and money getting shipped out of the country. How, how do they accumulate their wealth? Relatives can use their connections to be able to get sweetheart deals with state enterprises, with international companies coming in. They have knowledge beforehand when a company is going to be listed on the Shanghai Stock Exchange, and so they can make money through insider trading. Keep in mind that since 2006. The current administration has made a point of strengthening the state enterprise sector at the expense of private businesses. And it, since the party controls the state enterprise sector, they can dole out whatever party favors they want to to relatives and friends.、Right. And sometimes the relatives and friends just kind of know how to work the system, whether or not dad or their uncle or their brother-in-law is helping them out. The world's Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. Always great to speak. Thanks for explaining this to us, Mary Kay. Thank you, Marco. Now to another story about a leader accused of improperly enriching himself—a former leader, actually. Italy's former prime minister Silvio Berlusconi found guilty of tax fraud today. He was also sentenced by a court in Milan to four years in prison, later reduced to just one. But no jail time for Silvio yet, pending appeals. Reporter Megan Williams is in Rome, and Megan, first of all, tell us what Berlusconi was convicted of exactly. As you mentioned, he was convicted of tax fraud.、Uh, he and ten others were accused of buying U.S. film rights to air on his private television networks. And so, what he did was buy the U.S. film rights at inflated prices through two offshore companies that he controlled. And prosecutors alleged that part of the money declared for buying the rights to the movies he siphoned off and、uh, created these illegal slush funds to the tune of about four hundred million dollars. 
And this also meant that he paid fewer taxes as a result. Now, the trial began six years ago when he was still in office, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Why did it take so long? Well, I mean, it's been sort of an obstacle course, this whole trial, because Berlusconi, at the time the trial began, was in office. He was the prime minister. And many observers in Italy point out that the the raison d'etre for Berlusconi going into politics was to protect himself from prosecution for these sorts of cases. So he passed laws uh, providing immunity from prosecution for himself. And so that stalled the case for a number of years. And then that law was struck down, but he was allowed to say that he couldn't show up in court because he was dealing with affairs of the state. So that delayed it even further. You know, it's it's vintage Berlusconi. Right. And what about all the other trials and charges that uh, he faced during his time in office? Was this one, the tax fraud charge, the, the last of the charges he'll face, or are there more to come? Oh, no, he has, yeah, he has more to come. I mean, the, oh. the most recent one is the, the sex trial that's known sort of, you know, as the Boonga Boonga trial, all right. of these parties that he had with these very young women, uh, one at least of whom was underage. It was part of, you know, it was part of the sort of overall corruption of his, uh, you know, when he was in office. Right. Now, uh, when he was in office, Berlusconi was such a polarizing figure. I guess he still is in a certain way in Italy, managed to hold on to power for for years. But for many Italians, uh, he kind of sullied their country. What's been the reaction today to the conviction? Typically, his supporters and, you know, he owns a a number of newspapers. So the headlines in those papers are are the kind of headlines that we've been reading for many years now. Uh, Which means the judges just won't go away. Hmm. And Berlusconi himself says that he's the most persecuted man in history and that he's spent $500 million uh, in lawyers fees to defend himself against this, this left wing plot to get rid of him. Well, the trial did have a political component. The court banned Berlusconi from holding public office for several years. Could this really be the end of Berlusconi? We keep hearing that. The end of Berlusconi politically has already come. Two days before this trial, he announced that he would not be running uh, for the premiership of Italy in, in elections that are coming up soon. His numbers in the polls are so low. Even people who were really diehard supporters of him have a bad taste in their mouth because the economy is in shambles. The unemployment rate is high. There's a lot of there are a lot of Italians who are really hurt politically. Uh, He's not proposing anything new. You know, he's 76 years old. I think most people, even on the right, just want him to go away. The sentence uh, he's received has already been reduced from four years to one. Uh, Is he going to do any jail time? I doubt very much. And the reason for that is he has the right to two appeals. His lawyers have already said that they're going to appeal. And the statute of limitations apply to the appeals. So, you know, I think he has one more year before the statute of limitations runs out for for this case. And, you know, two appeals in that time in Italy, which is infamous for these court cases that go on and on and on. And his lawyers are extremely adept at prolonging cases. So I doubt very much Berlusconi is going to go behind bars, at least for this case. Right. But there's still the uh, sex with an underage prostitute case that's still lingering. I suppose that could result in some jail time. Yes, that case is is still pending, and he could well do time for that, depending on whether or not they find him guilty. Megan Williams speaking with us from Rome. Thanks so much. Thanks, Marco. Now, here's a mouthful. The Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe's Office for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights. Wow. 
The name's confusing, but the mission of the OSCE slash ODIHR is simple. It monitors elections, looks for fraud and improprieties. The OSCE, I'll use a short name now, sometimes catches flack for its work. This month, for example, it sent several dozen of its monitors into one country preparing for elections. The poll watchers came from Italy, the U.K., the Netherlands, and other European nations. And while they were still settling in, one powerful local politician told them to stay away. He even threatened them with criminal prosecution if they came within 100 feet of a polling station. But Texas Attorney General Greg Abbott's warning is the exception for these OSCE election monitors here to watch our election in the U.S., In Massachusetts, for example, where we are, OSCE monitors come and go year after year without making news, just as they do in Russia, Afghanistan, and countries across Europe. They serve as a reminder that as America votes, the world is watching. By the way, I'll be monitoring the election, too, from London. As Americans get down to casting their votes for president, we want to examine how the U.S. presidency impacts people beyond our borders. And while I do that in London, we want to hear your thoughts on the global reach of our presidents. Just go to theworld.org slash elections and look for the orange record button. Now, speaking of London, Britain and sports are your first two clues for today's GeoQuiz. But before you think rugby or soccer or cricket, check this out. Now, and he hits the ball high, deep into centre field, and it's gone! It's a home run! Pablo Sandoval! That's BBC announcer Simon Brotherton's amazingly authentic play-by-play call of giant slugger Pablo Sandoval's first home run in Game 1 of this year's World Series. And that leads us to a few more geo-quiz clues. Baseball, America's game, has been played in a certain part of Britain since the 1890s. It was brought back to England by a local businessman who'd visited the States. We're looking for the name of the English city where baseball first took hold. It's a city of about a quarter million in the East Midlands, a place whose soccer stadium was for more than 100 years called the Baseball Ground. Yeah, the answer is just ahead. This is PRI Public Radio International. The world is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Back to that city in England where baseball took hold back in the 1890s and where the local soccer stadium was for more than a century actually known as the baseball ground. The answer to our geo-quiz is Derby. Britain's love for baseball is not just a thing of the past, though. In fact, the BBC is doing live broadcasts of every World Series game. The world's Clark Boyd had a chat with the broadcast team. Give Simon Brotherton serious credit. He's a veteran BBC sportscaster. As such, he spent most of his career broadcasting things like English soccer and the Tour de France. But as you can hear, he's got baseball play-by-play down pretty well. And the stadium erupts. The Giants are on the board in the World Series. 
Baseball is, is my hobby. You know, it's one of my great loves as well and has been for a number of years. Brotherton's been doing baseball broadcasts for the BBC since 2003. He loves the sport, but says it isn't easy to learn all of its nuances. Football or soccer is something that I've grown up with, you know. Uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's part of who I am. Whereas baseball is something that I still do need to think about. Still, when you listen to Brotherton's call, it's clear he gets it. He uses terms like hit and run and small ball fluidly. Maybe that's because of his buddy in the booth. It's all about getting your head around not just the terminology, but where you need to be looking at the right time. Josh Chetwind is Brotherton's color commentator. Chetwind was born in Britain but grew up in the States. He played college baseball here and spent some time in the minors. Then he returned to Britain to play for the national baseball team there. Chetwind eventually ended up in broadcasting and found that baseball had a loyal fan base in Britain. I think loyal is the key word. It's not huge. I mean, obviously, it's, it's, it's not a sport that, that rates with the big three in the U.K., being cricket, rugby, and football, or what we call soccer. But the, the people who care about it care deeply about it. Chetwind and Brotherton make a good team for the BBC. Brotherton handles the drama, Chetwind explains the nuances, and they can chat about almost anything. We've uh, had the national anthem sung as well um, by Matthew Morrison of Glee. He was good too, Simon. I mean, we've had our fair share of uh, marginal Star-Spangled Banner singers in the past, but he, uh, he nailed it. Yeah, there was nothing... Brotherton says the key is remembering the audience back in Britain. Don't forget the World Series is going out in the middle of the night. You've got people who can't sleep people on night shifts, people driving around in the middle of the night. So we need to try and engage with those people who don't really know what's going on. So we've got to talk in a way that it actually explains what's happening. Brotherton's actually en route back to Detroit for tomorrow night's Game 3. He was last there in 2006 when the Tigers lost to the St. Louis Cardinals. And he says the Tigers now have a lot of work to do. You know, they just haven't got started yet at all. And if they're not careful, the World Series will be over before they know it. Look out, Tim McCarver. Sounds like Simon Brotherton is angling for your chair. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. It seems that more and more humans are coming down with animal diseases. Consider the recent outbreak of hantavirus at Yosemite National Park. It normally infects mice. Or what about West Nile? That's a virus of birds. Swine flu, SARS, even HIV originated in animals. They're what scientists call zoonotic diseases. There's a new book out on the topic, and the world science reporter Ritu Chatterjee has stopped by to tell us about her interview with the author for her science podcast. Hi, Ritu. Hey, Marco. So, yeah, I spoke with science journalist David Quammen, and his new book is called Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic. And he told me that what we are seeing is a worrisome trend. There seems to be a drumbeat of increasing incidences of, of new things emerging, spilling over into humans in the last 50 years. And it seems to have to do with things that we're doing, the way, the way we're dealing with ecosystems and animals on the planet. So, Ritu, is Kwaman saying that we humans are responsible for these diseases? Well, it's more like we're creating conditions that make it possible for such diseases to jump to humans more frequently. Um, let's take an example from Kwaman's book. It's about a lesser-known disease that first emerged in 1994 in a place called Hendra in Australia. Hendra is a suburb of Brisbane that's devoted to horse racing. So sometime in September that year, horses in Hendra started getting sick. Here's Kwaman again. 
One horse fell sick first. She, her face swelled up. She had trouble breathing. She became clumsy, falling down, ran a fever, bloody froth coming up her throat, and eventually she died. And the trainer and veterinarian who treated her thought maybe she was bit by a snake. Uh, maybe she got some toxic weeds or something like that. They didn't think too much more about it until two weeks later or so when other horses in the same stable started going down ill with the same kind of an ailment. So it seemed clear then that this was an infectious disease. Right. And then uh, is the next part of the story that the disease then jumped to humans from the horses? That's right, Marco. Three people tried to save the horses. They reached down into the animals' throats trying to clear their windpipes. Two of those three guys got sick. Here's Quammen with the rest of the story. The horse trainer got sick with something that seemed like a severe flu, went to the hospital. The stable hand got sick and went home. And then the horse trainer died in hospital from organ failure. They found a virus in him. It was a virus they had never seen before, but it looked to be oh, loosely related to measles. And then they found the same virus in the horses. And scientists called the virus hendrovirus. Okay, but how did this hendrovirus then jump to us? Were, were we enabling that to happen, we humans? Well, so the immediate reason for jumping to humans is obviously these humans were working with the horses. But let's look at the larger picture, the natural history of this virus. You see, this virus normally infects bats, three or four bat species. And these bats and the virus have existed in Australia for a long, long time. So why and how did the virus jump to humans recently? Mm. There are two reasons. First, horses aren't native to Australia. They were introduced by Europeans. Second, the wild eucalyptus forests where the bats originally lived were destroyed by humans in recent decades. So what happens then? Infected bats began living closer to human habitation in areas like Hendra. And this, of course, allowed the virus to jump from bats to horses and then um, to humans. Now, once the virus jumped to horses, the animals acted as what scientists call amplifiers of the virus. So the virus just multiplied inside the horses and made it possible for the virus to spill over to humans. Wow, interesting. So deforestation initially led to the Hendra virus outbreak, you could say. And once these diseases emerged, as we saw with uh, like H1N1 virus, uh, that that variant on swine flu a couple of years ago, they can spread pretty quickly around the globe, can't they? Exactly, because we're traveling way more than we used to 50 years ago. And there are more flights to more parts of the world, and there's more global trade. So these viruses can piggyback on things and enter ports, etc. And Quammen calls this the globalization of infectious diseases. Uh, that sounds kind of ominous. Does Quammen predict a gloomy picture for humanity? Not quite, Marco. He says he's guardedly optimistic about our ability to detect new diseases when they emerge and control pandemics. And listeners can learn more about that from my full conversation with Kwamen on my science podcast. And the way they can do that is by downloading the science podcast at theworld.org slash science. Ritu, thanks for stopping by as always. Thanks, Marco. You're listening to The World on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a restaurant chain that takes American fast food and gives it a unique Filipino flavor. Because we are capable of embracing all this craziness from outside and transforming them into some crazy Filipino food. Purple yam milkshake, anyone? 
PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The fighting in Syria can be summarized with some big numbers. 30,000 dead, hundreds of thousands displaced, perhaps as many as 2 million needing help of some kind. But what we're about to share with you now is the story of one little boy from Syria, a two-year-old toddler inadvertently left behind in Damascus as his family fled shelling in the Syrian capital. When the parents discovered their son wasn't with them, they assumed he had died. The family left Syria in August and sought asylum on the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. Then they got the news that their boy had survived, and incredibly, they were reunited. Polly Pentelides is with the English-language newspaper, the Cyprus Mail. She explains how the toddler got left behind in the first place. It is an amazing story, and you'd think that uh, they would uh, be holding on to their child for dear life, but unfortunately they had three of them, and there was a lot of chaos. Their house was being bombed, and they just assumed that one of the extended family had their youngest with them, and it was only when they got to a safe place and that they realized that they've left um, their boy behind. So who was caring for him? Was it indeed somebody from the extended family? Well, the boy was left behind in the ruins for quite a while until a random family found him and I handed him over to the rebels who then went around looking for the boy's family and ended up at a refugee camp where a family friend was able to identify the boy as the lost toddler. Did the parents think he was dead? What was their sense of what had happened to him? Well, the parents just thought the boy was dead. They, um, they stayed at the same place for a while, but there was no way for them to go back. And the road was blocked. There was a lot of fighting. Um, they were isolated and um, cut off from their home. And they just assumed that there would be no way for a two-year-old to survive in ruins in a war zone by himself. So they just um, assumed the boy was dead and eventually came to Cyprus and asked for asylum. When did they find out that uh, their, their son, uh, Bushar al-Tawashi, was alive? So they arrived to Cyprus at, um, in August, in early August. About a month afterwards, um, they found out that their boy was alive. But it took them quite longer for them to get reunited with the boy. They had to figure out how to bring the toddler to Cyprus. Right. And obviously, they couldn't go back to Syria, to Damascus, to get him. Um, exactly. W- what have you heard about the, the reunion? I mean, the, this was announced today, but when did the actual reunion happen? Well, Michael, the reunion, the, the father flew to Lebanon to uh, pick up his son, and the rest of the family stayed behind waiting for the boy. And the father was due to return uh, yesterday, on the Thursday, from Lebanon, which is where they could actually fly, um, that was um, a safer place for them to pick up the boy, to Cyprus, where the, a film crew was uh, waiting for them. The media received word of this, and um, they were there, and there were cameras there waiting for the boy and the father. And obviously the family had no idea, so <laughs> mm. you can imagine how overwhelmed they were. Right. Uh, you just, um, you, you reunited with your boy, and then you've got cameras asking you how you feel. <laughs> yeah, what about the boy himself? What was his reaction when he finally saw his dad? I can't even imagine. 
the way it was relayed to me was that um, the boy was ecstatic and was um, just talking and bubbling and shouting and uh, just seemed to be a bit overwhelmed and confused. Uh, the mom was very close to the boy. She was hugging her son. She was uh, um, <laughs> trying very hard not to cry, wiping away her tears on occasion. Mm-hmm. Um, and the older brothers were playing and they were all just uh, very happy to be together and I think a bit anxious to just be by themselves. You know, throughout the whole Syrian uprising, we've seen pictures of children killed, of babies killed. I imagine that there are many stories like that of Bushar al-Tawashi, kids who have just gone missing and may not be dead. Exactly. But the thing is, as a parent, you, the, you know, you, you, of course you hope, but you keep telling yourself that uh, you have to let go of that hope, that you have to carry on, such as this family. They, at some point, they said, well, our boy is dead. We have to look after our other children. So let's go to Cyprus where we can be safe. Uh, so I, I can see it being very tricky for families because you don't want to let go of hope, but... Um, you know that rationally your child might be in all likelihood is dead. Polly Pantelides with the English language newspaper, the Cypress Mail, telling us the story with the happy ending about Bushar al-Tawashi, who's been reunited with his family that fled Syria. Thank you very much, Polly. Thank you. Israel's prime minister this week defended plans for new housing construction in Jerusalem. It's in an area beyond the old Green Line, the pre-1967 border that used to divide the holy city. Benjamin Netanyahu declared that United Jerusalem is Israel's eternal capital. But some say Jerusalem today is a tale of two cities, Jewish and Arab, and the two are far from equal. Well, the mayor of Jerusalem says his city is for everyone, and he's launched a street-naming campaign to prove it, as the world's Matthew Bell reports. Getting around West Jerusalem, the Jewish side of town, is is not the easiest. The roads are a bit confusing, traffic is a little crazy. But at the very least, all of the streets have names, and pretty much all of the buildings have numbers. So if you need to find an address, eventually you can do it. In the Arab sections of town, it's a different story. So just pulling onto an an intersection here in in an East Jerusalem neighborhood that's called Jabal Mukabar, um, several main streets coming together. There's not a single street sign. Mahmoud, a convenience store owner, says he gives people directions to his shop by telling them it's past the United Nations building and near the school, down the road from the cemetery. If you pass the mosque, you've gone too far. If you need to order the ambulance, somebody said it's a big problem to find them here. It's not easy. Mahmoud says he's seen some tragic incidents. More than one person, he says, has had a heart attack and died while paramedics struggled to find the victim's house, especially since ambulances are dispatched from the Jewish side of town. This is one of the problems that Jerusalem's mayor says he wants to solve by starting to officially name hundreds of streets in Arab neighborhoods. An Arab-Israeli singer serenaded Mayor Nir Barkat during a recent ceremony in the Beit Hanina neighborhood. Community leaders proposed naming a one-block residential street after Umm Kulthum, the famous Egyptian singer. Barkat said naming streets in Arab East Jerusalem is a strategic step for the city. We're going to cover all names, uh, street names and uh, street numbers to all the houses in East Jerusalem. Some Arab residents hear that and say it's about time. 
East Jerusalem has been under Israeli rule since 1967, and only now is the city starting to put up street signs. Akram Abadwan attended the ceremony with the mayor, and when I asked him about the initiative, he just shook his head, saying Israelis are not really interested in improving Arab neighborhoods. Look what they've been doing all day. They've been fixing the roads, they've been preparing, just because the mayor is coming. I wish they had that same energy on a daily basis. Instead of street names, Abadwan wanted to talk about the demolition of Arab homes and the Jewish groups settling in Arab sections of East Jerusalem. If the city puts a stop to those things, he said, then he'll be less cynical. Others are more pragmatic. Hossam Watad is a community activist in East Jerusalem. We need basic services, Watad said. Just giving people simple directions to your house requires street names and building numbers. Mayor Barkat conceded that some Jerusalem neighborhoods have been neglected by the city. One of the biggest complaints from Arab residents over the years has been the difficulty in obtaining building permits. That means many newer buildings in Arab neighborhoods are considered illegal by the city. Barkat told me dealing with the issue is all part of his program that begins with naming streets. We're actually going through a process of rezoning, and indeed we're enabling both upgrading and uh, making the houses legal. It's part of the process and the strategy and the public policy that I have accepted by all the municipality. But many Palestinians would not accept Barkat's vision for Jerusalem. They hope to make the city the capital of a future Palestinian state and they're wary of cooperating with what they see as the Israeli occupation, even on something as seemingly tame as putting up street signs. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. We have photos of some of Jerusalem's unnamed streets and a new World in Words podcast on the subject. That's all at theworld.org. In the Philippines, the Jollibee restaurant chain is wildly successful, and it has branches all over the world. The menu may not seem all that special. Jollibee serves burgers, fries, and fried chicken. But it's a Filipino take on American fast food. And for the millions of Filipinos living outside their country, it's a comforting reminder of home. Reporter Aurora Almendral recently went to the opening of a Jollibee's in northern New Jersey. On opening day at the new Jollibee in Jersey City, the restaurant is filled to capacity. Customers pick up buckets of spicy fried chicken, stacks of hamburgers, white rice wrapped in paper, and frosty cups of pale purple yam milkshakes. By lunchtime, the wait takes half an hour, but Randy Santos, who drove here from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, doesn't mind. It's still cheaper than the price of a ticket back home. I've been away for a while in the Philippines, and I think this is a, a best way for me, the cheapest way to do it, just to go to Jollibee and feel like in the Philippines right now. On the Jollibee menu, there's... The amazing aloha, the combo. That's the burger with pineapple and french fries with ketchup made of bananas dyed red to look like tomatoes. The famous chicken joy and rice. That's fried chicken with gravy and... Filipino spaghetti. That's pasta in a sweet tomato sauce with sliced hot dogs and melted cheddar cheese on top. For milkshakes, you have a choice of ube, a purple yam, or buko pandan, which is young coconut mixed with something that gets translated into English as screw pine. When the giant yellow and red striped Jollibee mascot shows up, 
children gather around to hug him, and adults line up to take pictures with him. Among homesick Filipinos, Jollibee has a cult following. Once they're inside, it's like they're transported back to Manila, to Philippines, in their own favorite, in their favorite Jollibee store. Maria Lourdes Villamayor is the business head of East Coast operations for Jollibee. The company knows that part of what it's selling is nostalgia. Villamayor says everything here is a replica of what you'd find in a Jollibee in the Philippines. And to get the food exactly right, Jollibee imports the ingredients. We even import our our spices for the chicken joy, so that which we supply our tall processor here. Even the breading and the gravy are all are imported from the Philippines. So it's exactly the same gravy, the same bread breading that we use in Manila. The pies are all made by our own commissary in the Philippines. We bring them here. From its theme song to its food, Jollibee is an expression of the long history of American influence in the Philippines. The United States bought the Philippines from Spain at the end of the Spanish-American War. And for nearly 50 years, the Philippines was America's only official colony. When I landed on your soil... General Douglas MacArthur making his famous World War II promise to the Philippines in 1942. I said to the people of the Philippines whence I came, I shall return. The American influence even filtered into Filipino food, says Amy Bessa, author of the cookbook Memories of Philippine Kitchens. She also owns a Filipino restaurant, Purple Yam, in Brooklyn. Bessa says Filipinos were told their native diet of fish and rice was nutritionally deficient. When I was growing up, everything, that was one of the things that Americans did to us. They made us feel that our food was inferior. She says the U.S. introduced American staples like canned Spam, evaporated milk, and Vienna sausages. And then, of course, there's the, the hamburger, hot dog, pizza phenomenon. This is the food culture that Jollibee was built on, and it's proved to be an enduring one. When McDonald's showed up in the Philippines in 1981, Jollibee only had a few branches selling its style of hamburgers and hot dogs. But within four years, Jollibee was outselling McDonald's in what The Economist magazine called a huge embarrassment. Bessa doesn't really like the unhealthiness of Jollibee's food, but she appreciates what it's accomplished. She says Filipinos see it as a David and Goliath story, where a homegrown business beat McDonald's at its own game. Because we are capable of embracing all this craziness from abroad, from outside, and transforming them into some crazy Filipino food. At the Jollibee in Jersey City, Randy Santos says both of his teenage sons celebrated their first birthdays at a Jollibee in Manila. You know, being here in Jollibee represents our back home and represents our tradition as a family. It's a sentiment shared by Filipinos sitting down for a meal in crowded Jollibees around the world. They're happy that the company has found a recipe for the feeling of going home again. All for the price of a yum burger. For The World, I'm Aurora Almendral, Jersey City, New Jersey. Aurora's story comes to us from Feet in Two Worlds, a project that brings the work of immigrant journalists to public radio. It could raise my cholesterol, but when I look at some of those Jollibee meals, I'm telling you, I could forget about LDL for 15 minutes and dig into some spam, Jollibee style. 
Seriously. Or maybe I'll go with the milkfish belly. What's your favorite Jollibee dish? Check out the menu at theworld.org. This is The World on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producers of Market Warriors, from the people that brought you Antiques Roadshow, four pickers scour flea markets nationwide, hoping to out-profit their competitors at auction. Don't miss Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 central, on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Maybe you know of the late French singer Serge Gainsbourg. I love his music. J'aime ta couleur café, tes cheveux café, ta gorge café. J'aime quand pour moi tu danses. Songs like that one, Couleur Café, and his later reggae tunes recorded in Jamaica, and his kind of corny but clever French rock. It's all good to me. Apparently, a lot of current musicians think so too, including Rufus Wainwright, Marianne Faithful, and Iggy Pop. But Serge Gainsbourg's son, Lucien, or Lulu, who now lives in New York, didn't know that. He was only five when his father died in 1991. Being a son of Serge Gainsbourg wasn't easy. In France, it's like being the child of a beetle. Lulu's older half-sister, Charlotte, also found that out, working hard to establish a sense of autonomy in her own career as an actor. Like Charlotte, all Lulu Gainsbourg wanted to do, he told me, was to get out from under his dad's shadow. You know, since I was born, I've been always the son of my father. So this is why I left France, to be like just a guy. And I decided to do this because uh, at the end, whatever I do, I will always be compared with my father. So perhaps counterintuitively for his first album, Lulu Gansborg chose to do covers of some of his father's tunes to, as he says, go through that door and get it out of the way. And when he began looking for collaborators on the project, it was easier than he expected. I was a bit surprised that each artist that I contacted, they all knew who he was. And uh, when I was talking about this project, they all were like, of course, we know who he is, you know, like, you're nuts. <laughs> well, I'd love to listen to a few tracks from the album with you and just have you kind of react to them, talk about them. Let's start with your version of your dad's song called Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, yeah. Alors voilà, Clyde a une petite amie Elle est belle et son prénom c'est Bonnie A eux deux ils forment le gang Barrow Leur don Bonnie Parker Et Clyde Barrow Okay, Lulu Gensburg, that was you, the male voice, and the other voice taking the part in the song that Brigitte Bardot sang alongside your dad back in the day. That is actor Scarlett Johansson. I mean, she also does a lot of singing gigs and had, I guess, a little rock indie rock band on the side. So she was obviously in her comfort zone. Why did you pick that tune, and why did you think of her to take that uh, very sensual Bardot part? Uh, you know, my father recorded that song with Brigitte Bardot, who at that time was one of the most beautiful women in that era. So I did the same with Scarlett, who is actually, uh, my view, one of the sexiest women in my generation. 
And I picked that song also because she did an album with Pete Yorn called Break Up. And I found out that they did this album in inspiration of my father and Bardo's time. That's the so, singer Pete Yorn? Yeah. Yeah, so... <laughs> I'm pretty lucky, I guess. She's not the only actor on the album. There's also Johnny Depp. But I want to ask you about another track that really stands out for me. It's uh, Rufus Wainwright covering what has to be one of the most heartbreaking songs of all time. Je suis venu te dire que je m'en vais, or I came to tell you I'm leaving. Let's take a listen. Je suis venu te dire que je m'en vais Et tes larmes ne pourront rien changer Comme d'ici bien Verlaine, au vent mauvais Je suis venu te dire que je m'en vais Tu te souviens des jours anciens et tu pleures Tu suffoques, tu blémis à présent Qu'à sonner l'heure Des adieux à jamais Rufus Wainwright's voice is perfect for this. What, what did he tell you about his feelings for your father? When I talked to him about what I was doing for this record, he said like he would love to be a part because he's been a huge fan of my father. And we actually recorded that song the day of my mom's birthday, mm. which is really special for me because my father passed away the day after, on March 2nd, 1991. Right. And basically the song is saying, like, I'm here to tell you that I'm leaving. And uh, before the 20th anniversary, we, like, we recorded that song on 2011, March 1st. So it had kind of a double poignancy. Yep. So the track that I keep playing at very high volume at the house, and no one has complained yet, is uh, a tune called Le Poinçonneur des Lila. It's quite different on your album from the original. So let's taste your father's version first. Je suis le poinçonneur des Lilas. Le gars qu'on croise et qu'on ne regarde pas y a pas de soleil sous la terre Drôle de croisière Pour tuer l'ennui J'ai dans ma veste les extraits du rider digeste So that's the original uh, Lyrics and music by Serge Gainsbourg It's about the monotony of the ticket puncher The poinçonneur at the Paris metro station Lila And he's so bored he finally puts a hole in his head So he can get into a hole in the ground Quite lyrical if not a little depressing Here's the new version you produced Lulu So that's a very different version of Le Poinçonneur des Lila with uh, a man named Angelo Debar on guitar. Tell us more about him and this incredible gypsy jazz swing group he's playing with. Well, uh, Angelo is a really great man. For me, he's one of the closest musicians who plays gypsy like uh, the Django Reinhardt style. And uh, I know my father loved Django, and this is actually my father's first recording song back in 58 and uh, you know if you listen to the original there's kind of a gypsy mood mm. I mean uh, that's what's great about this song and about your album is that it, it kind of highlights the songwriting genius of your father that you know I always listen to this song as this kind of clever lyrical poem but musically this version shows how they can transform into completely something else yeah I mean <laughs> this is why I try to make this album eclectic because my father did this with his career. Every album is different. 
So um, I tried my best to stay uh, close to the originals, but I love this gypsy band. Yeah. Well, I got to say, Lulu, if the goal of this recording was to make a gift for your late father, certainly succeeded. Lulu Gansbourg, who has just released in the U.S. an album that has already gone gold in France. It's called From Gansbourg to Lulu. Really great to meet you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. see a video for the song Lo à la Bouche from Lulu Gansbourg's new album. That's at theworld.org. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, by the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.